guys, happy Friday, and thank you for joining another special episode of Your Welcome. There has been a lot of MMA news and discussion this week coming off the heels of UFC 280, and on today's program, I'm going to discuss all of it, plus the latest on John Jones and Stipe, a crazy story about Yuri Prohasco rumors about Covington versus Chemayev, and a whole lot more. But let's begin today's show with this. Who could beat Islam? What do you guys think? Whatever answer you have, the answer had better be Volkanovsky, or you're going to say, I don't think anybody can beat Islam, but Volkanovsky can do the closest. And the only reason I say it had better, I don't mean that to scold you. I'm saying as a whole, that should be our answer because that's who's going to be next. That's what number one contender is supposed to mean. Number one contender is a very coveted spot that is supposed to be representative. A guy who has clearly shown he can beat the field, he can beat all the rest of the boys, there's just one question left, can he beat the guy? What do you think? And I will share with you, I think Islam looks close to perfect. His style's a little bit dull. For me, that's a compliment. The oohs and the ahs, right? If you have moves that are dynamic, if you do a technique and you get oohs and ahs from the crowd, you're probably not a champion. It's very rare. It is the basics that wins championships. A guy who is very basic, who does not get called dynamic, who does not do techniques that go ooh and ah from the crowd, is generally at the top of the throne. And I think if you go look at every single weight class, both genders, I don't believe you'll disprove the statement that I just made. In fact, the more basic that Adesanya became because he had to, because he's fighting better guys, the less oohs and the ahs that he got, the less rounds he's been losing. Just by example. Now, when it comes to who can beat Islam, right, I'm also as interested in who can force Islam to do something different. I feel that that's a win. For going on three years now, I've never believed that beating Valentina Shevchenko meant that you take the belt away and you give her a loss. I've never thought that. I've thought winning a round. And prior to winning a round, I'll back up. I thought going five rounds, making it the distance is a win. If you can go the distance and you can steal a round, that's a win. If you get stopped in the fourth, but you won the second, that's a win. If you get in a wrestling exchange and you come out on top, that's a win. I've said it, but I think that you guys agree with me, Mike. There's some people that are so dominant. So as it pertains to Islam, aside from taking his belt away, who can stop him from taking them down? If we had somebody and they fought all night with Islam and stopped Islam from getting on top, could we agree that that would be a victory to some degree? Because I don't think that Islam can go take Michael Chandler down. That's my belief. And a takedown where you don't hold the position, I'm counting in the same category, whether I should or not. I believe that Michael Chandler could stop the takedown. Moreover, if Chandler slips and goes down, I believe that Chandler can get back up at his feet, turn and face him, and start back in neutral. I believe that. I could be wrong, but see, but that's why we tune in. That's why we have the guys fight. I'm just offering you one scenario. 
as we start to back out and we start to come through this thing, okay, there, there's two lessons that you have to learn here and neither have to do with Islam. As you're trying to break down who would be closest, who would give Islam the hardest time, as you start to deduce and you start to break that down, you start going through the, the Gaethje's and you start talking about the Poirier's and you start bringing the Chandler's into it. I'm not convinced that when you get to your final analysis, you're not going to come to the conclusion, Charles Oliveira is the answer. The problem is Charles doesn't know how to get a match. Charles wasn't any better a year ago when he became the world champion than he was two years ago when he was just one of the boys. That's the truth. Charles isn't any worse now. Charles just didn't get recognized. He didn't know how to go get those matches. Finally, Togan Ferguson gave him an opportunity. He used it and he did the most of it. But I'm sharing with you, Charles Oliveira, who has been radio silent, Charles can't promote a fight when he's incentivized to do it on a Saturday night. To get starched and to get beat and return to a main event is a science. There is a craft. There is a formula. To be a guy with really good skills who gets over and gets the shot and not understand that, hey, well, they didn't love having you here to start with. Now, this is cold. That's very mean. But you have to be very aware of where you're at. The organization is not disappointed now that I'm not their champion. Well, if that's true, then you weren't a very good champion. The organization should be in the back, hanging their head. My God, what do we do now? The king just went down. If you're getting anything less than that, you got to go to work. you got to go to work and you got to come back. And I think that Charles would be in a very good spot. All of the guys ranked right up there with Charles are guys that Charles has already beat. I'm not sure that the true number one contender, who's already proven I can beat the entire field, can I beat this guy? I'm not sure the answer isn't Charles Oliveira. How's he going to get the shot? Nobody's clamoring to see that. Nobody's going to clamor to see that until Charles starts banging the drum. So I don't know that that's going to happen. Now, let's just set Charles. I don't want to give Charles a hard time. I would never kick a man when he's down. I'm trying to lift him up. And I'm attempting to say what I believe to be true, that Charles Oliveira is probably the biggest threat to Islam. Now, let's set that aside. That's the guy that's not going to get the opportunity. Not next, not later, not if he wins two fights. He's not going to get the opportunity because there's a formula to it and it does not involve showing up with your mouth closed and getting your hand raised a couple of times a year. Let's adversely look at the guy who did get the opportunity, Volkanovski. What similarities do you see between Volkanovski's approach and Charles's approach? You don't see very many, do you? You don't see a lot of commonalities. You see a very different approach in Volkanovski taking the world's biggest risk, which is to be a backup fighter and on less than 24 hours notice be put in with one of two killers and not care. You saw Volkanovski. We didn't ask Volkanovski to be a backup fighter, guys. We never asked him to do that. We never told Dana, by golly, this is what I'd like. And Dana didn't come up with the idea and call Volkanovski. Volkanovski came up with the idea and he told the rest of us. That's the way that happened. And he wouldn't stop telling us. Then he updated us on his hand, which I don't think he wanted to do. I think Volk would have rather kept that private, but he did want the world to know that was eight weeks ago and I'm in great shape. As a matter of fact, I'm in great shape. I'm going to start releasing training footage of myself looking big and strong and close to weight and showing you how well I'm doing. He started to tell his story. Then sure enough, he came 
to the airport, got on a plane, went to Fight Island, and did what he said he would do. And the next thing you know, Daniel Cormier is calling the kid in the ring. He's face-to-face, -face, and it's announced Volkanovsky versus Islam. And in addition to all that, we're going to come to Volkanovsky's backyard to do it. How did Volk get there? What was different about Volkanovsky's approach versus Charles's approach? And once you study that and you begin to see that, what can Charles do now? I think the closest thing we have to a number one contenders match, right? We're just making Volk the number one contender. Generally, there's a number one contenders match, and I think that we've got it. It's coming up in a couple of weeks. But the rankings would agree with me. Poirier versus Chandler, which also allows for fresh parity. I don't know that so much would be on Poirier and Chandler if Oliveira was still the champion, just because he crossed paths with them. I, I don't know that we're looking for rematches as much as we're looking for parity right now. But with Islam as king, boom, focus comes right back to that match. So what should Charles do? Should Charles be going out to the media and telling them, I get the winner? Should he be saying, I'm the backup fighter? Should he be getting on an airplane, flying out to New York? I mean, should he just copy Volkanovsky perfectly? Or should he push that match to the side and do the exact Volkanovsky recipe, just do it for the match that's going to take place in Perth? Should he become the backup fighter? For Volk versus Islam, should he do everything right? Should he train? Should he get his paperwork in? Should he begin telling a story to the media through training footage? Should he lock down? Should he barrel down? I'm, I'm just asking you different questions. But there is a very different approach. I think Charles's argument to be number one contender would be very compelling considering he's beaten absolutely everybody in the top five. I think that's very compelling. But that's not going to start and nobody's going to pick up the phone and nobody's sitting on the second floor of the UFC trying to do all these different mathematical formulas to deduce who the top guy is. They're going to listen. They're expecting you to do that and you guys do always do that and eventually you do come up with an answer. And you come up with the right one every single time. So what does Charles Oliveira need to do to get your attention? congratulate Sugar Sean. I'd like an answer to that because nobody's told him good job. There isn't one article out there that's told him good job. You guys watching this right now, you've got Instagram, you've got the Facebooks and the Twitters. Some of you dorks probably still have MySpace. Have you gone on there and sent out a message? Have you told him good job? I literally haven't heard that yet. And I don't come to scold you guys. I just come to make a point. Because you know what happened to Sugar Sean that I didn't even realize? I haven't missed a day, guys. Right? I come. I bring you guys five pieces of content every day, on time, every time. I've been in here since the fight. I never talked about this because I didn't know what happened, which is he is now ranked number one. Cheeto Vera and Cheeto Vera and Sean O'Malley, they're never going to get it right. They're going to leave this sport and they're still not going to be friends, these two, right? They're just not going to get it right. Cheeto Vera came out and said, Sean should get the title fight. He said, Sean's very good. He's not as good as you guys say. I wish you'd say more things about me. I'm adding a little bit to Cheeto's statement. He said, however, he just fought the legit number one contender and he beat him. That makes him the number one contender. Give him his fight. That was a badass move by Cheeto. It really was. 
That was a cool move by Cheetah. Now I go back and look, guys, you might know this. This might be old news for you. This came out two days ago. I missed it. They moved Sean O'Malley 10 spots in the rankings. He is now ranked number one in the world. Sean O'Malley is ranked in front of TJ Dillashaw. Just for perspective for you. I don't believe Henry Cejudo is eligible for the rankings. Which means Henry Cejudo could come from unranked to title fight. Sean O'Malley's ranked number one. Now, I thought that was a very nice tip of the hat. I think people have been very hard on Sean O'Malley, and they've blamed him for things that are outside of his control. Not fighting ranked guys, making too much money, getting too much attention, being too popular. I mean, they've really blamed him for those. As though Sean had taken something from somebody else, or as though Sean had anointed and had the power to put himself in that spot. He had none of those things. He's a dirty, rotten cage fighter that in between fights markets his next fight. He's a guy that studied the system and then put a plan together and went out there and executed. None of these things were Sean's fault. Now, for the media to put him as number one, and let me tell you why I just said media. I'm reading about these rankings. Now, I don't know anything about the rankings. I truly don't, but neither do you. I don't know if that's a paid group. I don't know if that's a paid board. I would think to some extent you would have to be. Because they come out every Tuesday morning, is it 9 a.m. Pacific time? Every Tuesday night, just to have that level of organization, just to get everything together to tally up, just to make sure that your phone calls, your emails, or however it is you're doing this, to make sure that you have the collective body and those things get returned and turned in on time, you probably got to pay a guy, right? Probably got to pay a group of people. I'm making that up. I don't actually know it. But I was told that it was a group of media members are allowed to submit who they think. Now, that is very in line with other sports. A number of other sports, you will just take prominent media members. They will get a vote. We tally it up and there's your rankings. Okay, that sounds right to me. I haven't seen a headline out there that said, Sean, good job. So now we're being led to believe that a group of media has turned in since high cards that he moves 10 spots, goes from number 10 to number one. They didn't think to write an article. They didn't think they should maybe write a correction piece. They don't think maybe there's an apology. Hey, I had him at number 10. I didn't realize he can beat the other nine guys. I find it very interesting. The members of the media who've yet to write a positive article on Sean in the dark of night submitted an absolute admittance that we have had this wrong and we're going to correct it now and put him at number one, but have yet to write the article. I just think that's interesting. Observation. And generally it doesn't go this way, by the way. I like what Cheeto said. Hey, forget whatever you think about him. He just beat the number one contender. He's now the number one contender. I like that. I like that the media said, hey, forget it. We've had this wrong. We had this wrong the whole time. He's number one. I have no problem with correcting something. And generally, this is not the way that works. The whole reason that this is making big news is because generally the media won't correct it. If number 10 takes out number one, they won't compliment number 10 and admit that they were 10 off. They'll say they had the wrong number one. Oh, we were just a spot off here. You see, Jan should have been here, and this guy should, and this guy would have beaten number 10, and all of our rankings are good. I mean, generally, there's a real justification for it. 
And you see that in all walks of life, right? Generally, they will always have to justify why and what it is they did. They didn't do that in this case, and they moved them to number one. So what do you want to do with it? How come I don't see the articles out there? And how come if this is a poll of the media, why are they putting articles and letting the narrative that Henry Cejudo is going to swoop in in Perth and take the title shot? Why are they not backing the guy? They did it in the quiet of night. They did it in the dark of night. However they're submitting these things over an email, an online poll, a form of some sort, a group phone call. A Zoom meeting. They did it there. How come they're not doing it publicly? Why? Why are they quietly saying we had Sean wrong by 10? He's now number one. We fixed it and not saying he should be fighting for the title next. As a matter of fact, bringing somebody in who they didn't rank at all. Should Henry have been ranked? Is that what the problem is? Henry is not eligible for the rankings. Once you're removed, I believe it's for 12 months and you're not eligible to come back. That's a new rule they put it in. I mean, again, we're, we're making these things up as we go, but that is the current reason I'm just sharing that with you. Nobody would argue if Henry was to step in. But there needs to be some kind of a battle and there needs to be some kind of a fight over here. The one thing Shot cannot end up with is a rematch with Yawn. Now that's unlikely to happen because Yawn doesn't know how to do that. If Yawn knew how to do that, he would already have a massive storm brewing for that rematch. He just doesn't. And Jan put out a message on Twitter. It said, F the judges. Okay, that's great. That's simple. That's right to the point. I have no problem. He's telling his story, which is, I don't agree with the judges. The judges have screwed me. I get the whole thing. I'm into it. But Daniel Cormier took that and went and told the world that Jan is thinking about maybe not coming back. Now, that isn't Daniel's problem. If Daniel's hearing about that and Daniel's got his ear to the grindstone and Daniel can come out and Daniel can report that, okay, great, Daniel's done nothing wrong. But when Yawn hears that the big bear is out there saying he may not come back, Yawn has now got to step in. It is a rule in politics. If the opponent is ever lying about you, you must correct the record. And Jan didn't correct the record. Why would he let that be out there? He could get a rematch with Sugar Sean, who's now the number one contender and has the number one ranking. He could get that rematch. Now, time's ticking. He's almost missed that shit, but he let Daniel Cormier come out and say he's thinking about maybe doing something else for a living, maybe moving on for a career. Guys, maybe I'll wake up on the moon tomorrow. There's no statement that isn't true if you include the word maybe. But that's for Sean Yawn to correct. You know what? I don't give Yawn a fair shake, by the way. I truly don't. And I'll, I'll admit, and I don't know why I'm hard on him. I am impressed by him, and I do like him, and he seems a pretty good guy. I don't mean to come out and always be a guy. It's just when I see a guy get this close, when I see a guy this close and just let it go, a guy could get a rematch against the number one contender who has the number one ranking that the whole world could get behind. A guy could get that, but instead, he dangles, I might go and do something else. You can see where that'd be frustrating for me. And we all go through that, even as adults. I remember, you remember being a little kid. You're in the third grade. You've got an art project, you're doing your little art project, and you've got Lindsay and Justin sitting next to you, and then you show them theirs, and you show them yours, and yours is really good, and then you say to them as you show it to them, there you go, yeah, mine's terrible, just so that they'll tell you how good it is. Oh my God, why do you think that? No, that's beautiful. You stayed in the lines. I love how you did this. 
We've all done that. We just did it as children. But now sometimes you see adults doing it. Like, Jan isn't actually thinking about moving on. Jan isn't thinking somebody's going to come grab him and boost him up. Now, Jan doesn't think that somebody... He just wants to be told, hey, you won, you should have won, this wasn't right. He doesn't have anywhere else to go. He doesn't have anything else he can go and do. What's he going to put down on a resume? What are you talking about that Jan might go and do something else? He just needs a little sunshine blowing up his ass. We all need that sometimes. And I don't mean to be hard on Jan. I don't mean to not give him a fair shake. But to let Cormier go out and tell the world that he's going to leave, not to correct the statement because he actually enjoys that when all he had to do was push and do some blowback and get a rematch for the title shot. Come on. You can see where that would irritate a guy like me. Smith weighed in. He was talking about Chemayev. And Anthony just said, I think that Chemayev should go 185 pounds because there's more big fights for him there. Okay. It just got me thinking about Chemayev because we don't have a real clarity there. We don't have a real clarity on what Chemayev's going to do next, even in terms of weight class. But we have clues. We have these little details, right? I don't suggest for you that it isn't known what Chemayev's going to do next. I don't suggest for you roughly the date, the specific weight class, and perhaps the opponent isn't established. I'm telling you that we don't know. We haven't been brought in on that. So then we got to start reading clues in other directions. Here'd be a great example. Chemayev at 185 pounds appears to me to be the weight class that he is. I deduce that because the last time he weighed in, he weighed 178 pounds. There's my deduction. But the rightful opponent, without a question, would be Paulo Costa. Can we all agree? Okay. But a week ago, it got revealed to us that Paulo Costa is going to be fighting with Robert Whitaker. Which, by the way, is an incredible fight, but that's a different fight. And if I was to put Chemayev at 185 pounds, with a number of opponents, I think I could get you excited, but it would be a tremendous letdown from Chemayev versus Paulo Pasta. Can we agree on that? Okay. Now, three days ago, the kids on the underground revealed to us it's going to be Covington versus Chemayev, 170 pounds, number one contenders match. All right. But that was three days ago. It's very hard for Jemayev or sources close to Jemayev to stay quiet. They like being the one to reveal the news. They would get a lot of attention. They would gain followers if they had inside information. And historically speaking, Jemayev and his team are known to speak up. A return to 170 would be big news. Just that in and of itself. A match against Covington, a number one contenders match, any one of those things in and of themselves would be news. Interesting news. If you had all three of them, it seems as though somebody would have spoke up. Now, I could give the same compliment or commentary about Colby. He is not known to keep his mouth shut. A comeback fight, right? One of the biggest stars in the business coming off of a victory of headlining of a pay-per-view, defeating the BMF. I mean, right, there's a lot of things where Colby would like to come back out there and to get some attention. But he hasn't confirmed this fight. 
Colby having a fight and going back to training, just that would be a level of interest to all of us. We know he's going to fight at 170, finally being one win away, finally being back in that number one contender spot. These things would be very interesting, not to mention him versus Jemayev head-to-head, but everybody stayed very quiet. What do you make of that? I mean, for the first time ever, do we have guys in the sport who actually have been given information and kept their lips sealed as they were asked to do? Possibly. Maybe it's no more than that. But I would bring that to your attention because where do you want to see Jemayev? And if Jemayev is going to go against Covington, I don't believe there's anybody at that weight class that can beat Colby and not become the number one contender. I really don't care who the opponent is. Uh, Burns comes to mind. Blahal Muhammad comes to mind. I believe if you go through Covington, you are now the number one contender. Whether it was stated or not, whether we were told that as the audience or not, we the fans will elevate you to that spot. We're not going to let you go out there and beat Colby and not get the appropriate reward. But wouldn't that be true for Chemayev at 185 pounds as well? Who would you put Chemayev with at 185? And I don't know that there's a wrong answer. Jared Cannonier comes to mind. Paulo Costa and Robert Whitaker, though they look like they're fighting each other, they come to mind. Meaningful names. Sean Strickland, meaningful name. If Chemayev bounced up to that weight class, wouldn't he only be one win away? Regardless of who we put him with. Wouldn't Chemayev still only be one win away? The striker versus grappler concept that was established in 1993 and built this sport into an industry, it's still alive and well today. Chemayev versus either Piera or Adesanya, that's, it works. I would think that Chemayev at 185 pounds is one win away. Would you disagree? Because I'm attempting to follow the golden rule in life of put yourself in somebody else's shoes, what would you do? If you were them, how would you want to be treated? I'm attempting to do that. So, okay, I close my eyes. I'm, I'm Chemayev. I'm in Chemayev's spot. I'm a young guy. I'm undefeated. I don't want to live a life cutting weight. I've got to be in the gym twice a day, every day. I've got all this media. I've got all these appearances. I have an opportunity, but the opportunity, one, can make me uncomfortable, or two, can make me comfortable. And some guys don't know it, right? Some guys are used to cutting weight their whole life, like Jemayev, a wrestler. He just doesn't know any different. Maybe I'm speaking to you as more of a veteran in the sport. I eventually left a weight class to go up a weight class. I eventually left that weight class and went to Unlimited. So I can share with you firsthand, boy, life is different. The way you interact with people, just your pleasantries in life. When you go to bed with something in your stomach instead of, instead of hunger, maybe I'm just personalizing this too much. But I would look at Jemayev, who's a young guy. We know as human beings, we don't get smaller with time. We all tend to gain some weight, regardless of how many calories you're burning, regardless of how hard you work. I would feel as though either weight class, 170 and 185, provide the same opportunity, which is one win away from the title shot. That's what I would think. Is there somebody at the top of the bill, right? Maybe it's not all about a title shot. Maybe it's about a title. Is there somebody at the top of the bill who you'd rather avoid? We're never going to be privy to that information, but that's a real thing that goes through a guy's mind. A guy's going to put himself in a weight class or put himself in a situation where he feels he can be most successful. Why would Shemayev go back to 170? And what kind of a reward is it to fight Colby Covington? That's the hardest fight that you can possibly have. 
Is there a harder fight at 85? Do you guys see it that way? Do you believe that Chemayev would see it that way? Because I think we're right in deducing that Chemayev is one win away from a title fight. I do think that. And I also think that we're right with our hypothesis here that that carries over to two weight classes. One win at 85 or a win at 170 puts you into a title fight. Well, now you've got the likely suspects. Do you go through Pierre or do you go through Adesanya? Do you go through Leon or do you go through Usman? It's interesting. Which would you rather do? Which do you think that you have, have more opportunity? And between those fights, between your number one contenders fight and your title fight, what do you think is the path of least resistance? I think Jemayev's in the same spot. Nobody said that. There's a lot of things that have to happen, right? There's this magic wand that has to be waved over you. Nobody now how good or no popular you are just gets to be one fight away from a title opportunity. But it would seem like Chemaya versus a top guy would do just that. It would seem like Chemaya versus Paulo Costa works, but that's not happening. Paulo Costa is signed to fight Whitaker. It would seem like the kids on the underground that started the rumor about Covington versus Chemaya were onto something at the time they did it, but now it's been three days and mum's the word. I don't like having to guess. And gelling with Chemaya, I don't have to guess. He usually speaks up. He's usually out there. Right now, things are very quiet. And when it comes to Chemayev and what next, we don't even know the weight class. Did you guys see this report? Aaron Bronstetter. The Ariel Hawani of Canadian news, truly. I mean, Aaron is outstanding. If Aaron tells you it, you go ahead and rely on it. But he reported that Prohaska was tested by USADA 24 times in a month. By the way, in case you have anything better to do in your day, go ahead and skip to it now. Because I'm not about to get to any point. I was just blown away. Did you guys hear this? 24 times in a month. I mean, think about that, guys. That's every day. That is every single day. And I was thinking on there, okay, here's where Aaron got it off. When USADA comes in and tests you, there's actually two tests that are being done. They'll do a blood test and a urine test. So Aaron has separated those. So Prohaska was tested 12 times, which would be excessive in one month. No, 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 no. If you want to do that as a double test, then it was 48 times. They came to him and saw him and collected blood and urine 24 times. And it was such a large number that I got this story from Ryan Harkness, right? I've got, I've got to tie it because he got it from, from Aaron. But when Harkness got it, it was so excessive, he didn't believe it. Harkness went to USADA and to Prohaska. They both confirmed it. That's a lot of tests. See, it could be very tough. The guys that are in the pool could be very tough. I mean, do you think that USADA tested Prohaska too much? Or do you recognize USADA's really good at what they do? That's the entire point. The entire point is that there's no schedule. That there's no prepping and there's no planning. Look, there's one way to beat USADA that I know of. And I was so curious. I watched guys. I mean, guys are just huge middle fingers as they're walking to the ring. And there wasn't a lot of them. But there was guys that were blatant and it was obvious. And as soon as USADA stepped in, your favorite MMA Babe fighter became the incredible shrinking man, right? I mean, they all, we've had champions who never won another fight once USADA stepped in. 
Oh, by the way, down weight class. I mean, right, it was just one of these things. Hey, look, they're cleaning up, they're doing their job. But then USADA decides to come out and tell us all how to beat them. Going, okay, tuck that away. I see what they did there. How are these guys doing it? Because when I tell you I know one way to beat USADA, I'm not telling you there is only one way. I'm just telling you that I just know a one way. And by the way, my plan, it's not bulletproof. Okay. It's not a bulletproof plan. And I'm watching these guys, man. It's a joke. They don't care. They're putting on the jacket. They're putting on the, I've been tested 20 times by USA. And they're confident. I will tell you every time I gave a drug test to those guys, even when I was clean, I didn't sleep at night. I was nervous that something was going to pop. One of these picograms was going to pop up. These guys, man, they got a smile on their face, putting the jacket on. I'm going, okay, but how are you doing it? I've left the sport. I'm out of the game. Just fill me in. I'm really curious. And I was given a guess, and you guys have heard it microdosing. I don't believe that. I know that you've heard the term, and some of you will even run around to your friends and go, oh, they just microdose. You, you don't even know what you're saying. You truly don't even know what you're saying. You learn this fancy word with a bunch of uh, syllables, microdose, but I don't know that I believe that. And if you are microdosing, there's still three different ways to get that into your body. So before you think you're the smart guy at the party or somebody else comes in and tells you microdose like they know what's up, they won't know that there's three different ways to get into your body. They'll think it too. Believe me. But this is how you know you're not in the room with an expert. And this was one of the answers that I was given. I just don't believe the answer. I don't believe it. And Usada pulled one. I'm trying to think of the athlete. But one thing that guys will do. So I'm speaking in code, right? I'm sitting there going, oh, I know something, but I'm not going to tell you. Believe me, I know how annoying that is. But I don't want to tell. I don't want cheating in the sport. I want there to be clean sport. I don't want the guys to have done what I did back, back in my time. I don't want that. I want Usada's way. Usada's the ones that's that's right here. It's still not perfect and you still need time. So what Usada did, and but they advertised this. This was a big deal. It was wise of Usada. Usada does a very good job with PR. They re, they really do. They tested a guy on Tuesday. Now that guy's gonna be free and clear, right? Everybody knows that. He's gonna have a number of days. They came back on Thursday. That hadn't been done before. That had not been done before. And I've never heard of them, and even there was a day in between. You know, and that's kind of a good thing. It's a massive inconvenience to be tested by USADA, but there's also a pain element to it, right? I mean, they're putting a needle into your vein. It takes a few days. It takes a few days for that vein to get I me. Mean, they come in and they poke it and they re I'm just sharing with you that it, it, you, you can be very uncomfortable. To a degree, you're cage fighter, you're not going to come out and say anything, but there is that side of it. So for Prohaska, they would have had to come on a Monday, on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, on a Thursday, a couple of, and then again, day after day after day, it is, it is a massively excessive test. Now, there's only one thing that you would suspect Prohaska of being on, and I'll tell you what, if they came 24 times in a month, he's not on it. But there is one thing that you would suspect that he's on, and it's not to make him Bigger, stronger, faster, right? It wouldn't be an anabolic of any kind. And I've seen it too. I know what Usada's looking for, and I know why Usada's over there. And Usada also understands how important it is that we come and then we come again. But some of these other athletes, I mean, I'll just tell you, I just find it interesting. I've always found that realm interesting. 
and for USADA to mix it up the way they're mixing up. See, people don't like when USADA comes out and confirms these things. They don't like that. That should be private. I understand that to a degree. But USADA, when they come out and they talk about these things, are attempting to tell a message. And the message is you never know when we'll come. And if you've got a level of confidence that we're going to come a day and we won't be back for a week, if you've got that confidence, let me let you know right now. We'll come and we'll come two days later. Let me let you know right now. We will come and we'll come the next day and the day after that. It's, it's very effective. It's very important that those kinds of messages get out. Now, let's do the math real fast on Prohaska's fight. So we are at the end of October, which gives you till November, December. Yeah. Yeah, I know what they're looking for. I know what they're looking for. And they're close. They're close. They, they'll have to do those 24 times. They'll have to do it about 12 times in the next month. But let's see. It levels a playing field. It's very interesting. It's interesting anytime they change the game. Anytime there's a little bit of a shakeup. Because if USADA thinks that us athletes start calling around and we start getting it down and we get the schedule down, even if you're within the same gym, you got a super gym, you got five, six, eight guys all under contract, all in the pool. I mean, just in the sauna after practice, you can start swearing stories and you start putting your little evil plan together. 24 times in 30 days? That's a clean champion. I've been retired for three years. I've never tasted alcohol. I'm a complete square in that regard. I couldn't beat Usada 24 times. I really don't have a confidence in that. But Prohaska did. Stipe. Guys, things are starting to get weird. Now, I don't have a problem with weird, just so you understand. Okay, I live in Oregon. We got bumper stickers that say, keep Oregon weird. So perhaps I, I have a little bit different connotation when I say it. Not necessarily as a bad thing, but let's observe this in fairness. Let's be real objective about this. John Jones put out a tweet yesterday. He said, I'm preparing for Stipe on December 10th. I'm going to control what I can control which he meant to be his physical preparation. And we'll see where everything goes from there. Now, I did what's called trolling on Twitter, where I wrote him back and let him know he can go ahead and relax. He's not fighting Stipe. But let's be fair here. That's a very responsible approach by John Jones. If John has any inclination, and of course it exists, I mean, the great Errol Hawani put out a week ago no more than two weeks ago, that the UFC was looking to do Jones versus Stipe as a main event on December 10th. That's true. Now, I broke that down for you guys moments after that made the interwebs to let you know a fight of that magnitude is not going to get shoved together and jammed on a card. I broke it down a lot more eloquently than that. But that was weeks ago. My premise is much stronger now, which is why, though I was trolling John Jones, that's the reason I had a level of confidence to put it out. They are not going to put Jones versus Stipe on December 10th, which already has a world title fight. Just isn't going to happen. Not on this short of notice. Now, 
When I tell you that things are getting weird, we have to give a very good look to what Jones and Stipe are fighting for. And, and by the way, I'm not against that match. I, I love that match. I wanted that match for a period of time. That match is a very big deal. I, I just want to make that clear. Me telling you that that match isn't going to happen on December 10th isn't me throwing water on the flame that is Stipe versus Jones. I'm very into that for a lot of different reasons. However, what are they fighting for? I don't believe in any circumstance they're going to just go fight. You don't either. We all have an opinion that that's going to be for a title. It's just a matter of which one. Is it interim or is it undisputed? I'm taking a pause here so you can all weigh in if you disagree with me. Do we all agree that Jones and Steve Bear are going to fight for some kind of belt? Okay, great. Now, we don't really have to wonder that. We don't have to wonder that collectively. When a rumor two weeks ago that was co-signed by the great Errol Hawani said that they were going to fight on that card, now we know it's for a title. Because we know that's going to be a main event, and we know a title fight is already on the card, which means it has to come after a title fight, which means it has to be for a title. Now, I understand in this sport, we are going to fiercely adhere to whatever rules we make up on the spot. I do understand that. But it is said that if there are two championships in one night, whoever weighs more will go last. That is what's said. So if we're armed with the fact the Prohaska versus Glover that you guys do not want to see for whatever reason is on the card, then we know for Stipe and Jones to go over the top of that, we'd have to put a belt up. Okay, great. I, I feel like I'm, I'm laying out and I'm being redundant to a point that we already concede to. The point is that they're fighting for a belt. That's it. Am I there? Have I convinced you? Do we all agree? Okay. If you're doing an interim title, an interim title more than it is about location or more than it is about athletes, or more than it is about rankings. An interim championship is representative of a date. More than anything else, that date is the most important thing. You're going to be the champion in the interim. As we buy some time, as some days and weeks and months go by. For the time being, right? I mean, these are all colloquialisms for the word interim. So if Stipe and Jones are going to fight in December, then that means we've had enough time with our undisputed champion. We must get on with it. We must have somebody holding the throne, wearing the crown in the meantime, in the interim. It's precisely what it means. But if we're not going to do that on December 10th, well, excuse me, then do we not have to have an interim champion? If we need a placeholder... For the meanwhile, and the most important thing about the interim belt is the date. Then it would seem as though on the 10th, if we have heavyweights fighting, we need to give them the interim championship. Or we need to admit that our dates don't conflict, they don't coincide, and we don't need an interim champion at all. We can't need one in December. We can't. We just can't need one in December, but we might as well wait until March. It doesn't work that way. No, it works whatever in the hell way we want. But <laughs> Believe me, I know that we can make the rules up as we go. I'm just trying to prove a larger point. Eric Nixon, excellent and famed coach, Extreme Couture, Francis Ngano's coach, came out and he was talking to the media 
over the weekend, this one over under most people's radar, Eric said that he had received a phone call from the UFC, and the UFC asked him, hey, for your client, for Francis Ngannou, in a perfect scenario, who is his next fight against? And Coach Eric said that he answered that voice on the phone and told them, John Jones. And they said, okay, and they hung up. Now, we have nothing from that. But I think if we were to reasonably deduce that for that phone call to come and for discussion of any level to exist about Francis Ngano, we could also interpret that Francis and the organization are coming to terms. Is that fair? Is that a fair thing to do? I mean, imagine the world's different, right? We don't know what's going on with Francis and his negotiations behind the scene. We have not been told. For a little while, we were brought right along, but then we got cut off. But could you imagine that somebody at the UFC who only has so much time in the day, has very busy things to do, is looking to get yeses and not noes, is in the middle of not getting a contract worked out and calls to see who you want to fight. I mean, could you even imagine that? No, that's tough. So there must be some dialogue. There must be some real positive things there with Francis. I would think that that's good news. I would think we would welcome our heavyweight champion back. I would think that we would be very glad not only to see the performance, not only to see the lineage of that belt, but to know that a human being who was hurt is no longer hurt. Now, we can't celebrate that until we're officially told, but these are some of the clues that we have now. If Francis is going to come back, if that is a contract dispute, and he does want to fight John Jones, why would we put Jones with Stipe? And this isn't my original idea. Michael Bisping called for this four months ago. I thought he was out of his mind. I mean, I really did. I thought, Bisping, you're not paying attention. It's going to be Stipe versus Jones. This whole thing's going to work out. It's going to be for the interim belt. Francis is never coming back. He's about to go make a sport up and jump across the pond and get ripped off in the dirty sport of boxing that he doesn't know is getting ready to use him and slam him out the door. I mean, this is where we were five months ago. But as the weeks and months go by, Bisping is looking more and more correct. I don't have a dog in this fight. I like good things to happen for Stipe. I think that Stipe is as close to an action figure superhero. I got a son. I got a young man. Stipe is somebody you can look up to, but Stipe stays very quiet. He doesn't let us know what's going on. Stipe's put on some size. When they come out to Cleveland, they throw him on the camera, right? He's in his sports coat. He looks big. He looks good, but Stipe doesn't go and do interviews. It looks as though Stipe's the one that held up Stipe versus Jones, and then you have to wonder why. For somebody of Stipe's age, for that point in his career, historically speaking, you would only turn down a massive fight for a title if you were hurt. Historically. But Stipe hasn't told us. Maybe it was just a schedule conflict. Or maybe Stipe, who I blame and tell you doesn't play the game, maybe he is playing one. It's down to those three, and they've got a round robin. And they're all going to fight each other. It's not as though of those three, two are going to fight and then one guy is in a canoe rowing by himself. He's going to wait and he's going to draw into the winner. We have not only established that as the masses who create a mandate, the boys in the locker room at heavyweight have all stood back and laid down and quit. They're not even vying or fighting or arguing 
or suggesting or begging or pleading or flipping a coin or sending a pigeon, sending a fax, writing on a postage stamp. They haven't done a goddamn thing to get a fight. Okay, so we're going to have those three guys. We're not going to do an interim title on December 10th, which apparently we have to have because interim literally means date. Then let's just not do it at all. If we don't do it at all, it would remove Stipe from the equation. It would come back to what Bisping said five months ago, which is put Francis in there with Jones. Stipe waits in the wing. He takes on the winner. Anything can happen. We've got the power of the pin, which has the power of the eraser on the other side. But do you dispute any of the findings or facts that I just laid out? MMA and judges, guys, where do you stand? I mean, I feel like that's a really fun topic. I personally enjoy it. Anytime people are judging people, it's not going to be fair. Anytime in life, you'll never find an example around that. It creates controversy. Controversy creates cash. So when I tell you I love our system, I'm a guy sitting over here in a chair talking to a camera. I need things like this. But it is a topic that's been around for a while. And there are some decisions that come in that are flat baffling. That is true. Evander Holyfield and Lennox Lewis went to a draw and nobody was put in handcuffs. Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather. <clears throat> the crooked judges that were cheating and stealing for Floyd that night end up not having any egg on their face because the fight got stopped and it went the way that they were preparing it to go to. I mean, those are egregious. Those are disgusting. But those tie back in a sport of boxing who at its most basic of levels, that of the amateur, did have people investigated and did have people put in handcuffs. And I'm talking about on the Olympic level. Now, it's never been pursued and it's never been looked after under the professional level. I also don't think that it should be. I don't think that anybody on the professional level has ever screwed somebody over. That, that's a big term to say ever. I'll tell you, I'm not aware of it. The night that Lennox Lewis and Evander was a draw, those three judges should have had to come before a hearing. I can't go any further than that. I'm not talking about handcuffs. I'm not talking about firing people. I'm talking about embarrassing people. I can't go any further than that. They, they should have had to come before a hearing. And the only reason I come to that is they are licensed through a commission. The commission that licenses an athlete that did something that erroneous would bring the athlete before them. What was that guy's name? I want to call him Victor Ortiz, but I don't think that's right. Threw a headbutt at Floyd Mayweather. I don't believe that I got his name right. He threw a headbutt at Floyd Mayweather. They made him come before the commission before they would license him and let him move on. They just made him speak about it. They licensed him. They didn't hold him up. They charged him a $10,000 fine, but they spoke about it. They used an example. Hey, that's not what we do here. That's against the rules. Egregiously, and you violated the rules. Do you understand that that's not okay? And they took him at his word when he said, yes, I do understand that. And they gave him a disciplinary action, and he did not do it again. That seems appropriate to me. In MMA, we have such good judges. 
mean, I'm giving you examples of the Olympic Games where people were removed from Olympic Village and banned for life, where there was corruption, where there was NBC cameras filming and watching judges taking money from administrators. That happened. Very big deal. But I don't see anything like that in MMA. I really don't see these egregious errors. I see people with a different opinion. Now, Joe Rogan has spoke about this for years. And Joe has been very consistent. And I don't know that I want to categorize Joe's stance because I'm not positive I understand it. But I know it goes something like this. Joe wants there to be 10 judges. Now, he spoke about this three days ago. This was in the wake of and in light of Sean O'Malley winning a split decision over Peter Yawn. That is what stirred this. But Joe went back to the 10 judges concept. And I've heard Joe say it before, like, I don't know that 10 is the magic number, because I've heard him make the same argument, I've heard him say 9, and a number of years ago, I heard him say 7. So at least I think that I understand Joe's point, which is we, we should have a multitude of expert opinions. But then Joe went a little bit further a couple of days ago. I've never heard him bring up this point, and he was talking about having set judges for the UFC. Now, he's still like the number of 10, but that they will be actual employees, they will be put on a salary. These guys are going to get a hundred grand a year, rough number. I think possibly a number that Joe threw out, but they're going to come to, they're going to do every single UFC, just like the referees do, just like the camera guy does, just like the PR team does, but they're going to be set, just like the ring car girls might be a great example, possibly one that Joe even made. I don't want to go much further into Joe's detail, but I know that I'm close. It was a whole bunch of judges, but he went a step further. And he did say, let's make them employees of the UFC. Let's make sure that they understand that there are people that are watching the sport. Joe's contention was when you have an athletic commission in a specific area that does not get the sport very often, gets the sport once a year or even once every three or four years, and they get brought in to do it that we don't know for sure that they're polished and that they're refined. That's a reasonable point. I don't love the 10-person idea. I think if we've got a problem with three, that adding people, if, if we're deciding, and I'm not part of this, but if we're deciding that the three are incompetent, I don't see how, how multiplying that pool by 333% with 1% left over if you have a calculator is going to solve the problem. I just don't understand that. Now, what about Joe's idea? Because I never have heard this one before. What about them being with the organization? Would that help the problem or would that add to the problem? I mean, the way that we have judges now and the fact that an athletic commission oversees it, even if they're not the pol most polished because they don't have it a whole bunch, boy, it's, that's damn near a perfect system. I think that you could see the problems with having the judges be internal. Now, Dana White fiercely disagrees with Joe Rogan on that point. Dana White wants nothing to do with selecting the judges, nothing to do with paying the judges. He wants no quid quo pro. So I'm not sharing with you that Joe is stating this because this is being looked at and this is an avenue we're going. I'm just sharing with you, how would you solve the problem? Do we believe that O'Malley and Yon was close? Because if we do, let's just all get up and walk out of the room. And that's what you have a judge for to call these close ones. We know what the judges are supposed to look for, damage being principle number one. Are you sure? I mean, are you really sure in your heart that Sugar Sean didn't do more damage? It was Peter Yawn that 
changed the realm of that fight. It was not Sean taking Yon down. It was Yon taking Sean down. That doesn't mean that Suga did more damage. I don't pretend that it does. But I will speak to the point that logically speaking, if when they're toe-to-toe, which is where the damage is being done, Yon elects to change that realm, that Yon is signifying for us, he's doing more to me than I'm doing to him, that doesn't make it so. Like, that in and of itself is not evidence. But it's speculative evidence, and I think it's a fair point, and it was Yon who was looking to change the realm of that fight. And I did think that Suga did a lot more damage, at least with On Their Feet, though he did not have control. But control is not the number one thing the judges are supposed to look for. It's damage. Do you see where this gets to be very interesting? That isn't the fight that you want to look to. Moreover, when you have a split decision, it is the opposing voice that has the explaining to do. If three experts sit down and two agree, it's the one that didn't agree that has the explaining to do. Perhaps that's wrong. Perhaps that's the part that we want to look at. I'm just sharing with you so you do understand how this works. When the cameras go off air and everybody gets behind the curtain, if you had three judges, the descending judge is the one that has to explain, yet it was the two judges that agreed that we don't agree with. Perhaps that's the part where we have to look. I mean, how many times have we heard, even just in culture, this was done by the book, but we don't agree with it? Well, maybe we need to change the book. I do think that there's a reason that you name names. Personally, I personally believe this. There used to be a time when we would say, and Judge Saul D'Amato, and Judge Douglas Crosby, and Judge Cecil P. We would name names. I thought for a level of checks and balances, I thought that that was a little bit better. I do. That's a personal belief. I don't think that you want to start bringing in more. I've heard Joe make that argument a number of times. I just, I don't understand why. If, if we've got a flaw right here, why, why would we want to extenuate? Nowhere else in life would we want to do that, right? Like if you, had, if you had a speck of cancer, you don't then want more cancer. If you had a day of being hungry, you don't then want a week of being, I, I just, I've never understood the concept. But the suggestion of bringing them and making them employees, what do you think of that? So they come around, now they're fresh, they're, they're, they're polished. What do you think of that? I think that I see a lot of problems. And I think if you're not seeing the correlation that I'm trying to make by having actual employees that travel as judges and the correlation that I'm making, that when you have three opinions, the one descending is the skunk at the garden party. The other two don't have to explain because now they got backup. There's power in numbers. But what would happen if you named names? What would happen if you brought it to everybody's attention? Would that make things better? I think we're in a pretty damn good spot right now. I really don't know of a sport that's... But I have brought you great examples. Lennox Lewis versus Evander was a draw. Nothing happened there. That's not right. Conor McGregor getting set up to lose to Floyd. Nothing happened there. That's not right. What would happen to my next suggestion? If you had a very bizarre call that is simply not what happened. It was simply fiction. Do we chalk it up to a bad night? Do we bring you before the commission? It's what they would do to the athlete. It's what they would do to the promoter. It's just a suggestion. What do you think? All right, guys. That's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. 
and leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts like this one from Hype, which says Chael calls himself the bad guy, but he's very much a man of integrity. Well, thank you for the kind words, Hype. And thanks to all of you guys. We're going to be back next Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome.